Hello, everybody. This week's episode is brought to you by The Visitor, the latest horror thriller from Blumhouse Productions. When Robert and his wife Maya move to her childhood home, he discovers an old portrait of a man with his likeness. Never a good sign. A man referred to only as The Visitor. Yeah, if he looks like you and he's called The Visitor, uh, you know you're in a horror movie. Soon he finds himself descending down a frightening rabbit hole in an attempt to discover the true identity of his mysterious doppelganger, only to realize that every family has its own terrifying secrets. The Visitor is available to rent or buy on digital October 7th. Very good, Vespi. And I am here with an ad read for our good friends over at Wood Rocket. Shout out to Leroy Myers. Have you smoked too much weed? Is your trip way too trippy? Have you, in fact, bitten off more edibles than you can chew? Well, have I got a book for you. Are You Too High is the new book by Brian Box Brown, the comic book artist and author behind many graphic novels, including the New York Times bestselling Andre the Giant Life and Legend. Are You Too High is a hilarious and delightful guide that may help you or your distressed friends stop freaking out or at the very least make you laugh until smoke comes out your nose. Are You Too High is in stores now, or you can find it on Amazon or at netoco.net. That's N-E-A-T-O-C-O.net. And, uh, well, I guess I, I don't have anything to, to add to that, actually. I guess it's time for the Fango ad read, isn't it? It is, and guess what? That means it's my turn to do Fango. Mm, girl. I know, so ready. Are you guys ready? Nasty. All right, say it with me. Now it's time to tell you all good people about our corporate overlords at Fangoria. This classic magazine has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. Not only is Fangoria highly collectible, if you get yourself an annual subscription, which you damn well should, it comes right to your front door four times a year, and each issue is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking, past, present, and future, with all of the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including your intrepid KingCast hosts. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, never online, so if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. To do that, all you got to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. Now, with all of that said... Let's get on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! Sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. I am extremely excited to have today's guest on the show with us this week. Uh, this one's been a long time coming. Uh, you know him as the director who contributed a number of top tier segments to films like The Signal, the original VHS, and Southbound, as well as being the filmmaker behind. Some of the best horror films of the past decade, including 2017's The Ritual and 2020's The Night House. This week, his latest feature, a reimagining of Clive Barker's Hellraiser, hits Hulu. And I am delighted to tell all of you that it whips an overwhelming amount of ass. Just a total knockout. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. David Bruckner. David, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm, I'm great, Scott. Thank you, man. It's good to be here. Oh, I... Uh, uh, well, yes, it is great. I'm sorry. I'm skip. I'm just completely ignoring you because I want to 
talk about Hellraiser immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, Not with this chit chat bullshit. Let's yeah, er, get into er, the Cenobites. Eric got to see the movie at Fantastic Fest. I got taken I, out of commission three days in and uh, by COVID. Yeah, and my missed. antibodies are strong and I got rewarded for it. Yeah, mine are weak and cowardly. Uh, <laughs> and so I missed it, but I was able to uh, catch a, a digital screener from them this morning. Just finished watching it. You knocked this thing out of the fucking park. Congratulations. Thank you. That, Thank you. That's, that's great. I'm glad you got to see it uh, in a COVID delirium. Well, the COVID delirium is not too big. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it would, I, I don't know how I would have responded if I was running a fever, but uh, I'm actually feeling pretty good. Um, when this when this project originally came to you, did you have any trepidation about getting involved in the in the Hellraiser business? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's there's so many different uh, amazing ways it can go wrong, <laughs> <laughs> as we have seen over the years. <laughs> I was it's just uh, it's it's look, it's a lot to bite into. And it's also, uh, you, you know, it was sort of a sink or swim um, kind of proposition. I'd actually known that Ben Collins and Luke Petrowski were working on it with Phantom Four for a while while we were finishing mm-hmm. the last movie, The Night House. And Every now and then, um, our producer, Keith Levine, would just kind of, uh, he'd bring it up. He would just, you know, we'd flirt a little bit about it. He'd say like, well, you know, that I'm waiting on that Hellraiser script. And I just would say, don't even, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk <laughs> about it. I don't, don't, don't bring anything up. And don't tease me because we all know we got to see how this Nighthouse movie goes. And uh, so when they gave it to me in, um, it was like April 2020. Uh, and I read the script. I was a huge relief because I, I, I was like, oh, my God, they found a way through this. And uh, and I fell in love with the ending, especially, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and we got started. Hmm. Yeah, Hellraiser is interesting. And uh, Scott and I were talking about this before you came in the, the room uh, to do this. But like, I've always found Hellraiser uh, as a kid, the tone of it was unlike any horror movie aside from maybe it was scratching the same itch that I got um, uh, the same feeling, the same tone I got from a nightmare in Elm street, the kind of dreamlike, mm-hmm. you know, it just automatically got under my skin. Uh, but there's something a little impenetrable about Hellraiser, which is part of the, I don't know, the appeal and the allure of, of the, the mythos. It's got such a deep lore to it. So I, I can't imagine, you know, you're the relief you must've felt it when you're like, Holy shit. Like they were able to, uh, to kind of crack this so so you know a whole new uh, generation can can experience uh, this and and it's not just you know a whole bunch of con- convoluted mm-hmm. gobbledygook you know well part of it part of it too is the idea that they, it just didn't and this my fear was that I was you know going to see the work and and that it was going to be closer to a remake of some sort and what I was relieved to find out was that it really wasn't trying to compete with the first Hellraiser. Yeah. It's too intimate. It's too weird. Most of it takes place in a grimy, sweaty attic. It's so specific. <laughs> uh, it's also a really, I, I mean, I, I just don't know that it's a movie that you can get made today, at least not on this scale, because, uh, no. you know, you, I, if you want to, you know, look at the narrative technically, I mean, Julia is really the protagonist. Kirsty kind of comes in in the third act and, and takes over as an innocent with the box. But like, it is a very, very unique structure for a story. Um, a lot of, I think, the bleakness and the grimness of how it lands uh, it comes from the fact that you're you're really watching the story of of this woman feeding you know men to her 
you know, dead lovers who he can reconstitute. And, right. and it, there's just a really icky feeling that sets in because you're playing along with that, whether you really want to or not in some ways, even right. though she's also regarded as the villain. So, um, you know, I think modern audiences and, you know, for studios to get behind, you know, what I hope is the first of, of many more Hellraiser movies. I'm sure, you know, they'll keep making movies one way or another that, um, you know, there, there, there was an awareness that you had to broaden it just a bit to get people in the door and that maybe that would be a new starting point for the conversation. Mm. Well, I thought, you know, that's, that's one of the bigger selling points to your, your take on it, I think, is that it's super accessible to anyone who's a complete newcomer to the franchise, I think. Mm -hmm. And it also rewards longtime fans. You know, there's a ton of stuff that Luke and Ben did with the script um, where, they're just tweaking the lore here and there and kind of expanding it in, in some unexpected ways. There's, there's things in this Hellraiser movie that I wish had been in other Hellraiser movies and never got around to seeing. And they put it all in there. I think that if I were coming to the franchise fresh, I would really enjoy this movie, but as like a long time nerd for this franchise. And it is, it is difficult to be, a, a franchise nerd of of Hellraiser because there are a lot of uh, let's call them shaky entries in that series. You know, uh, maybe some maybe some not great sequels. This is not one of those. This is like halfway through it, I I turned to uh, my roommate and was like, "It is crazy to see a Hellraiser movie with this level of like budget quality talent brought to it right. after years and years of like you know those dimension sequels and stuff." This is. Man, this is almost exactly the movie that I wanted this to be. I'm, I'm so excited there's a new Hellraiser that I can really embrace because it's been a long time since that was the case. That's great to hear. You know, we, we were we were spoiled, I have to say, just because, I mean, you, I, I, I keep joking that, you know, you, you could make a horror film, could be, you know, a guy in a mask with a knife, but it's not. There are these interdimensional BDSM demons that show up when the walls <laughs> fly apart and they shoot chains at you from an infinite labyrinth. Like just from a logistical point of view, <laughs> not even getting into the thematic layer cake that is Hellraiser, just, just pulling off how to do that stuff is uh, quite an undertaking, which is why, I mean, going back, studying the first one over and over again, it just, it's so astounding what Clive was able to do. I think, uh, you know, for us, we were we were able to take uh, some of those set pieces and some of those ideas and just do things with them that, you know, maybe maybe some of the other filmmakers before us uh, were up against limitations, you know, couldn't couldn't really imagine, you know, for instance, like our puzzle box changes shape. You can interact with it. Um, it's actually a puzzle. You know, uh, we we we, we had uh, a lot more work we could do with the chains. You know, there's. Um, impact points when they land they can you know throw throw bodies around uh there's really yeah. them so a lot of that's just having a, just a little bit more time not that we had much um but uh you know to do the proper wire work and to to prep some more complicated sequences so i hope just you know the 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 visceral nature of uh those those kinds of tropes those moments that feel very hellraiser that we were you know we've been able to like add to that in in a really fun way were the boxes um, fully operational? They were. Uh, there are transformations in it where we had to augment with right. CGI. Some of it's a, it just it would be impossible to do practically. But um, 
but a lot of the movements are completely practical. So, you know, we have six boxes, uh, there's various iterations, this is all in trailers. It's not really a spoiler, but the, uh, uh, many of the puzzle interactions were built practically. And, uh, all that was designed by this, um, video game designer out of Copenhagen, Martin Imborg. We did this game Echo that feels very Hellraiser in its imagery. So we we found him and invited him into this with us. And uh, and he he really lost his mind with it. So the, the puzzles are real. You can follow them. They're solvable. Yeah. Usually, usually it took like, you know, three or four practical cubes to represent one, you know, set of maneuvers. So you would just, gotcha. just trade them out mid-take. How much did one of these boxes cost to build? Like if I were going to set out, to to build a, a a lament configuration, were they fully metal? Are they like like what are they made out of? They're actually made out of resin. I don't know how expensive they are because you do kind of an overall deal for this stuff. But it's a really right great on. prop house uh, in London called Machinarium, and uh, and they instantly got it. They 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 saw the challenge here and just. Uh, uh, really, really wanted to go uh, full throttle with it. But the uh, I don't know each box necessarily. But one thing is kind of cool about resin we talked about early on was like, we just, I want them to feel heavy in the mm-hmm. atmosphere. You know, you have to sort of imagine that we, we designed that they were kind of built out of three different kinds of mysterious or somewhere between metal and stone. And then we just send over all kinds of textual references, you know. But um, just big believer too that, you know, any the closer you can get to it, uh, in the real, the more we were mm-hmm. all siphoning imagination off of that when we we're making the movie. So, uh, right. Yeah. They were finishing them as we were shooting. So, you know, every day uh, a new box would play there. There'd be a guy that showed up getting off a plane from London with like a briefcase and open it up to a shiny new box. It was exciting and a little terrifying. <laughs> I would so love to hear that. The con- Cause you shot in Serbia, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I would love to hear the conversation with the uh, <laughs> with the customs agent as he. <laughs> so, what's in this box? <laughs> it's funny because I when I traveled to Fantastic Fest, I had four of them in my bag, and of course, TSA picked them up. So uh, I got a couple great photos of TSA agents all uh, gathered around <laughs> with the lament configurations. Not the best idea. <laughs> well, that that's that that's the untold uh, story from the opening of the movie where where the box is purchased and picked up and then getting it back to, to uh, Massachusetts or whatever. That's the untold story there. Many customs agents. Still suffering. Yep. You directed, I don't need to tell you this. I'm sure you're aware that you directed uh, The Ritual, which is a movie I've been, you know, raving about since I first saw it because the creature design in it was so memorable. And I'm, like I'm a big creature guy. Like if I, I think that so many movies do not deliver memorable creature design, you know, there was that period where it was like, everything was a big gray hulking thing with like six arms. You know what I'm talking about? Sort of mm-hmm. like formless. And uh, the, the creature in the rituals just instantly uh, like iconic to me mm-hmm. as, as a piece of monster design. And I understand you worked with the same people, the Russells, that worked on the ritual for Hellraiser. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Josh and Sierra Russell, um, you know, makeup effects team, good, good friends of mine. We've been through all of it at this point. And uh, but also Keith Thompson, who who is the the concept designer, uh, who I I had been a fan of 
for a long time. And when, mm-hmm. when I got the ritual gig, I, uh, I just called him and was like, I got Andy Serkis producing this movie. It's a classic monster movie. And he jumped on. And, um, I, I think anybody that knows Keith's work knows that the, you know, the motor from the ritual, the U-ton is very much a Keith Thompson creation mm. as well, but it's always, a, it's a collaboration between him and the wrestles to a great degree. Cause they have to realize it in the real. And then there's, there's, uh, you know, there's a creative step there too, as all this stuff, uh, comes to fruition. So, uh, but yeah, same team on Hellraiser. They brought the same talent to bear on the the designs of the the Cenobites in this thing. Like, you know, I've only seen it the one time, so I don't want to, you know, get hyperbolic about anything. But I think they may be the best looking in the entire franchise. It's so, so cool what you've done with them and how many of them there were. I was unprepared for there ultimately to be that many <laughs> Cenobites in the movie. I would love an art book for for this movie. You know, like really study those designs in detail. They're so intricate and cool. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, well, you <laughs> got to see them on set, presumably. The, the one specific question I'll ask you about the, the creature mm-hmm. design was the um, the sort of I don't even know what to how to describe them, but the the dial that's in the priest's throat, Jamie Clayton, who's mm-hmm. the new the new pinhead here. You know, is there any backstory to what that thing does or was it just, no, it looks fucking cool. So we're putting it on there. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so the, the, you know, you, you, you write a script and you want to at times be coy. There's, there's room to be vague because the audience, you know, doesn't often want an expository dump of information about how the world fits together. So you sure. sort of, you sort of design it with, you know, keeping in mind that there's all kinds of things that we don't want to tell you, but when mm-hmm. you get into design, you have to be specific because you're creating images and suddenly like talking with your production designer and you're like, you know, what are the archways? Are they Catholic? Are they Romanesque? Like what's Hellraiser? What's the labyrinth made out of what, you know, mm-hmm. um, what does it hearken to? And so um, that, that really manifests, I think in creature design uh, and the way that, abstract notions, villains, monsters, you know, all things supernatural function, you realize that you're kind of telling a parallel story Mm -hmm. that the imagery can, can suggest. And so sometimes like design doubles back into, you know, the screenplay and sometimes screenplay doubles back into design. You kind of get, you know, both, both groups working simultaneously, but, um, you know, our Cenobites, we really wanted to untether them from, you know, the earthly BDSM culture, uh, one of those ideas <laughs> seems to be present, but we just didn't think that, you know, in particular, the black leather, which was a big move that we made, uh, was to, to sort of reimagine how that might work. Uh, but we wanted the pursuit of pleasure and pain and the obsession with dominance. I mean, the Cenobites are definitely interdimensional doms. That's absolutely true in our movie. Mm-hmm. But that we wanted them to kind of a uh, uh, pull from a different set of tools and devices that would grant them the means to pursue their pleasures, whatever they may be. Uh, and the old movies have done that as well. I mean, you, you know, sure. it's, it's, it, look at how mechanical Chenard gets, you know, when he becomes, mm-hmm. a, it's like kind of, you know, it's wide open. It's anything you can do anything in this universe. And so, uh, so in playing with that, we were imagining the technology of our box as being uh, something that, they would have access to in different ways. And we started imagining all the different means that the Cenobites could um, 
find the pleasure pain threshold for themselves and uh, that some of this tech would be uh, present in, in, in the Cenobite designs as well. So um, what's going on with Pinhead's throat? Uh, <laughs> you will see uh, bits of it, you know, working with some of the other Cenobites as well. You know, there's something kind of cool going on at the back of Chatter's head. Uh, there's a really clear function to uh, a cylinder piece that a, a, a new Cenobite that's not in the trailer that I'm really excited for people. Yes, yes. Fix, uh, is bound to um, and creates a sort of persistent constraint. And um, uh, that piece that piece is a lot of fun. And then, of course, you know, there's a predicament that one of our other characters is, is in throughout the film. <laughs> that also harkens to the same notion that is I, one of my favorite creations of the movie. And I think um, really something that we haven't seen yet in a Hellraiser movie. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about in that. Oh, God, it's so cool. The movie is just really, really cool. Um, I wish we I wish we had more time to talk with you. Uh, and I would go on about this for another four hours. But we do not. We got to move on, but you hit a home run, man. I would be very, very proud of this movie. You know, um, congratulations. Thanks, that means that means a lot coming from you. We, uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll get onward to the king. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Clyde Barker and and Stephen King have a little bit of a connection. You know, uh, do yeah. you want to talk about that, Vespi, a little bit, just to yeah, well, remind the folks? Yeah, this is. The, this kind of harkens back to my early days reading King uh, because I remember I was led to Barker through King like most people in uh, in the early days of, of Clive Barker were because King had that great quote, which I'll always remember, which is I've seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. And that was just plastered on the I don't remember. It was one of the books of blood, I think. Right. And that that had that that quote. Do you remember that? Yeah, particular detail. Correct. Yeah, but I just remember that it was like that's what burned me to to pick it up, and that's something that I really love about, especially the '80s era King, is that he was so willing to throw his name out there to help people. He did that with Sam Raimi uh, mm-hmm. in Evil Dead, and you know he gave him a quote to put on the poster, and then suddenly they had a huge drive-in hit because you know it gave him legitimacy, and and I think that's what King did for Barker. That's definitely, you know, my memory of it. And, and I, judging by talking to a lot of other people who are around my age that grew up reading horror, you know, that uh, they were led to Barker through King. Yeah, that's certainly how it happened to me. I think I think they use that quote uh, a few times because I I seem to remember it being on the cover of the Damnation game, which Could is, uh, uh, you know, uh, a great Barker novel that I would recommend to people. But um you know, big differences between Barker and King. <laughs> you know, Barker is, uh, I would say, a lot hornier than King. King is is horny in his own way, but not like Clive Barker, which yeah. is like a whole new level. King King, King is like uh, small town dad horny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little league coach horny. Well, maybe we don't want to put it that way, but like, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, more wholesome horny than than Barker, where you're like, oh, what have I gotten into here? And I responded to that as a kid. I was a horny little kid. You know, going through puberty around the time I was reading that stuff. Love Barker, but we're not here to talk about Barker today, as we've already pointed out. We're here to talk about King. So I, I guess I should ask you, David, what your uh, Stephen King origin story is. You know, I, 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 my mind, I'm kind of, I'm sort of moving through the Rolodex of what the 80s were to me, which is a weird phantom blur. 
because uh, I was born in 77. So I, I like a lot of these movies just kind of emerged <laughs> in my subconscious. It's kind of like they were always there. So I don't know what the first, I don't know the first King movie was, but it, it I want to say it was probably Silver Bullet mm-hmm. or maybe, maybe Christine. Um, I know Creepshow 2 was something I found before Creepshow 1. Uh-huh. So I watched that one a lot. I, I see a common thread in in uh, this and the topic that we are about to discuss in that every single one of them was heavily in cable rotation, heavily in cable. Yes. I, I watched all those movies dozens of times throughout my childhood because they were the ones that were always popping up on cable, including Cat's Eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was my experience because it wasn't I wasn't super industrious when I was young. My parents weren't huge movie fans, so it's not we weren't collectors necessarily, but you could tape straight off cable on yeah. VHS. So you'd have these, you know, VHS tapes, just chunks of movies, uh, you know, pieces of movies that have been taped. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it'd be like I'd have an uncle who would leave one of his tapes around. So I'd, I'd, I'd end up with movies that became uh, you know, a big part of my life simply because that's what we had sitting on top of the television necessarily. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, another one was Maximum Overdrive. Um, yes. Of course, King Directed. And uh, that one was particularly upsetting for me. Uh, just Wait, wait why? Because a kid got run over by a steamroller. And it, uh, <laughs> I just couldn't. Anytime kid death happened in movies, I found it really shocking. And I, I was a really, uh, I was really sensitive. I loved monster movies, and I was always um, seeking out fantasy and sci-fi. But horror, horror was really scared me. It took me a while to to embrace it necessarily. So, I, I think Gage getting hit by the truck in Pet Cemetery is. Uh, um, probably more upsetting to me only because the idea of getting run over with a steamroller is just i don't know it's just funny to me like <laughs> it's just like, like Roger, you should, Roger like, Rabbit like, Looney Tunes it, yeah. well it just seems like a thing you should be able to easily navigate around <laughs> you know i've seen the movie like i know the circumstances in which the the steamroller is used to such gruesome effect in in maximum overdrive but um yeah you i'm never going to gonna, i'm never going to not find that funny can't like, run in a straight line. I think I think right. that was his fatal error. Also, <laughs> he was on a baseball field, if I imagine. So it's not like he couldn't have made a left or right pivot. Yeah, well, and he was on a bicycle, which is even worse. Like that should give him oh, more right. maneuverability. But the bicycle <laughs> seemed to have revolted against uh, humans as well because it like does this crazy stunt where it like flips him over the handlebars after he hits nothing, and then his legs get all caught up in it, and that's why he can't get away from the. Oh, right. That is that is pretty fucked up, though. That That is something that if you actually stop and think about, you know, being trapped in one spot in the slow death, the slow, agonizing, crushing death approaching you. Uh, it's not really executed that way in the movie. But uh, when you like try to break it down, it is a little bit more fucked up than just being run over and, and squished like uh, Judge Doom and Roger Rabbit. I think I'm going to take the opposite stance. I think because there's a Looney Tunes quality to it, I found it more upsetting. You know, there's something oh, really? like, yeah, there's grand comedy of an event happening, but then the consequences being so real. It's right. like, I don't know. I'm reminded of uh, the, the giant critter ball in Critters 2. Right. That, that like, eats people, <laughs> leave skeletons behind. Yeah. And then he's just a bloody skeleton. They're like, they completely picked him clean, but his bones are still able to move on the yeah. ground. These things really upset me when I was young. <laughs> well, because that, that evokes like the reason that happened is because he was eaten so fast. And so there's still a part of him there, you know, 
tw- twitching and feeling it, which maybe that's kind of play. Maybe the origins of your Hellraiser go back to Critters too. We can we can thank uh, <laughs> McGarris to that. That's my patient zero. Trauma. <laughs> it's also why you hate Easter to this day. Mm. Have you read like how much King have you actually read? Are you Not a reader? A I, I was a big reader of uh, of his short stories. So I had a I you know obviously I had a, uh, a copy of Skeleton Crew and I read that one a lot yeah. several times and then that led me to Nightmares and, and Dreamscapes which I don't remember as well. Um, I never read Night Shift. I took a crack at it, but uh, other than that, mostly King you know and Long Walk of course. But Long Walk I read you know, years later as an adult Mm -hmm. and, um, really, really loved. And, uh, but, uh, no, it was the, it was the movies that really got me and captured my imagination. And, um, I mean, how many, do you have a favorite of, of the movies, a favorite of the King movies? I'm I'm pretty bad on favorites, you know? I mean, (laughs) it's also because I, you know, you see movies, you know, so many years apart necessarily. So I wonder how they hit, you know, going back, but, uh, it's it's a real tough one for me. What about Kid You? Like you you have one of those uh, a stack of those VHSs that each have like three and a half movies on them, <laughs> and yeah. you're gonna fast forward to find the 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 second of, of of three on one tape. Like, what's the one that you put in the time time for? Is it Silver Bullet? Well, Is it Cat's Eye? Is it The Shining? What's the? I mean, there was a lot of creep show too. You know, Lots. Uh, Shining I discovered later. You know, when I got into horror, and uh, I mean, that's hard to beat. I mean, that's, that's, that's probably, I mean, that's, I don't even, I don't even kind of put it in the same bracket because it's King and Kubrick, but right. uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Graveyard Shift was one that I watched a lot. Hell yeah. I loved it just because it was a awesome practical monster, you know, early Brad Dourif. And, and I've always just found it really, really frightening when you, you know, can, going underground you can break into a new chamber and find a new level of below like something about the just geographic journey of that always Mm -hmm. really really stuck with me yeah and then i had a special place in my heart for the mangler Uh, oh no really (laughs) because that one caught me elaborate on that please (laughs) well i just didn't it was one of those movies you just yeah i I, sometimes i remember coming into a movie with no uh, you know, preconceptions of what it was going to be necessarily. And I sort of thought I was in for something that was maybe it was like the blue collar aspect of it or something mm. that it was going to be more adult themed. I really didn't imagine that this, you know, giant, you know, piece of machinery was going to come alive in such a literal fashion and hunt people down. <laughs> so that would, right. It was always such a delight to just realize, you know, you, you, you're in for something that's, you know, going to be that basic and entertaining in a way. Yeah. The Mangler is, you know, nothing if not memorable. Um, what we've discovered in the process of doing this show, we've, we've, we've covered the first two Manglers and on, on both of those, we found that it is very fun to talk about the Mangler, but not so much fun to watch the movies, but there's, there's so much shit to like dig into with those. Cause it's, it's just so bonkers. Like Robert England running around on his like, like cybernetic legs and shit in that first one. And, you know, he's dressed like a, didn't he dress like a Southern dandy or something? <laughs> he, he, he's a dapper fellow with, uh, <laughs> with one dead eye and, and uh, screaming mm-hmm. like foghorn leghorn. Yeah. Exactly who you want running an industrial laundry. I, think. <laughs> I didn't know uh, there were more manglers. So this is, Oh, a- <laughs> oh yeah. 
yeah, yeah. you don't want to see him. Do you, but, do you want to venture a guess as to what the Mangler 2.0 uh, is about? No, <laughs> I Because I can, I can guarantee you, you you're wrong. No, no matter no, what I you say. Not paid on, on nightmarish textile machines or... <laughs> well, you think a, so. Uh, it's about a private... Well, you go ahead. Go it's ahead, a computer virus in, in the second one uh, <laughs> that uh, infiltrates a military kind of school uh, and... Uh, uh, and then takes over the AI of the school, you know, as as you would imagine from that first movie or that that short story. That's the next jump. Wow, unexpected. <laughs> Yes, by the dulcet sounds of Rob Zombie's voice, uh, the the director of the new Monsters movie, Eric. By the way, yeah, if you're which not has aware, a very not high audience or critic score. Don't tell Rob Zombie that. Well, let's not get hung up on that. We we, we just want to tell you <laughs> we we have something new for you in the mid roll ad reads. We're gonna turn the floor over to the good folks at the George A. Romero Foundation. So uh, take a listen to this. Hello, I'm Suze Romero, and I'm the president and founder of the George A. Romero Foundation. It's spooky season, and we're also doing our annual campaign drive. We're looking to raise $20,000 this year. We need your help. We want to provide the support to filmmakers in the horror space with scholarships, mentorships, fellowships, all the ships. So please visit GeorgeARomeroFoundation.org and donate today. Take good care. Stay scared. Excellent. And with that said, uh, Eric, I think we we need to get back to the show, don't we? I think it's time. Hit it. The title you brought us today is Cat's Eye, which is very interesting. This was maybe the last thing I expected you to pick. Can you talk (laughs) a little bit about why why Cat's Eye? Well, I mean, look, I, I you guys have done a lot on the King's cast. And so some of my uh, short story favorites, like uh, the jaunt has been well covered, which mm-hmm. uh, continues to haunt me to this day, uh, uh, as well as I don't know if you ever did survivor type, but uh, yeah, I was kind of digging around in the in the kind of history of uh, stuff I remember from King. And this one popped up just because this was definitely one that I had on VHS that mm-hmm. I watched too many times when I was young. And, uh, it was such a bizarre experience to me in retrospect, because as a kid, I, for a long time, I mean, the full draw on it was that there was this fantasy creature third act that looked like something pulled from legend or labyrinth and that was accessible to me. And I was like, I could do anything I could do to watch a monster movie, you know, to see the special effects. It just, I was in love with all of that. And then, uh, but that I kind of had to get through uh, these these two strangely adult themed short films along the way, and over time, I realized I'd watched those movies a lot, and that like the Ledge and the you know James Woods trying to quit smoking were movies mm-hmm. that uh, actually had an impact on me. You know, I, I would have never sought those out otherwise. But it just born out of this really atonal, bizarre horror anthology that uh, I actually went back and watched again before this conversation. I probably haven't seen it in 25 years, maybe longer. Oh, wow. And uh, I was I was pretty amazed at just how zany the entire effort is that you're going to use a cat's perspective to tie together an anthology. <laughs> right. You know, only in the mid-80s. You know, something I noticed while I rewatched it last night, and 
something I noticed while watching it was, um, you know, I was kind of trying to think of it in terms of like a way to connect it to Hellraiser, you know, which is an insane thing to even think. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's part of our job as hosts is to maybe find those <laughs> connections. And what occurred to me is the new Hellraiser is an addiction story. Mm-hmm. And I was noticing that the first two chapters in this smokers, uh, smokers or Quidditch Incorporated yeah, yeah. and uh, the ledge both have addiction themes running through them. The first one's about a guy who's trying to quit smoking. The second one kind of revolves around this, you know, uh, gangster type who's, you know, a degenerate gambling addict. And then that third one just completely abandons the theme entirely. And as you've already pointed out, it's just it's just about a little goblin guy with a little wavy knife you know, menacing Drew Barrymore. It is, I was thinking while watching it, I wonder if there wasn't a third, a different third chapter planned for this, where it was also following some sort of rough uh, addiction theme and they had to swap it out for general, which is the name of that, that third one. But Hmm. anyhow, we'll see many adult themed anthologies really, you know, and and what I mean by that is like, uh, you know, some, anything that, because Quitters Inc. is kind of this uh, sort of absurdist satire. Uh, right. Alleges too, in a way. I mean, um, I'll say the other reason that like I brought it up was just because I, I Cat's Eye in general is just because I've I've worked on a lot of these anthologies, and yeah. um, anthology has always been something that's been really fascinating to me, mostly because I ju- I just love short form horror because. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can get in late, you can get out early. And sometimes, you know, you have a lot of great ideas that live in the space that are, um, there, it's a simple premise and you don't, you can't really get third acts, third, three acts out of it necessarily, you know, as far as expanding something where it wears out its welcome, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, a, in, a, in an effort to avoid that, it's like, we always had the short form and, the only way to really market short horror films, short films in general, is to kind of package them together and give them to audiences. And it's been exciting, I think, in the in you know the last ten years, we've gotten a lot of great anthologies. But back in the day, in the eighties, you had a ton of them, and that was, I mean, Creepshow and Twilight Zone, um, the Tales from the Dark Side show were all a really, really a big influence for me. Very mm. scary. Yeah. Uh, opening credits for Tales from the Dark Side was traumatizing right (laughs) this is a theme that's come up before on the show it has there's for a certain generation that that narration with the the image flipping to the negative yes why is it scary it's really unsettling for for a kid it's kind of goofy going back and looking at it now but it's uh man there's nothing scarier to me like yeah i would legit get more scared about the opening credits of uh or the opening (laughs) title sequence of tales from the dark side than any of the episodes easily there's a slippery, like, you know, idea that it, that movies and TV sometimes brush up against, which is just reality breakdown. Yeah. And uh, and then and only horror can do, which is, you know, your world, but different. A version of something you understand, but adjacent to how you understand it. Mm-hmm. And on a really intuitive level, that was not only frightening to me as a kid, but it also kind of made sense to me in a way that I sort of, I kind of imagine makes less sense the older you get and your imagination, the scope of how you view the world narrows a bit. When I was a kid, I'm going to get some really specific random shit here for a second, but like, sure. I, uh, um, I used to believe I grew up in um, a suburb of Atlanta and we had a, a, a pretty big backyard and uh, 
in it, I, I used to believe that there were two versions of my backyard that uh, it was almost like I had built a mental map of one version of it and built a different, you know, a different mental map of another version. It was almost like the cardinal directions were different, but everything was in the same place. And so whenever I would like, you know, go play or hang out in the backyard, I, I would remember there being days where I would realize that I was in the other one. What? And uh, yeah, and it would really, it was a really uneasy feeling that went with it. And, um, and over well, time, the kind of, you know, evil uh, goatee wearing reality <laughs> slowly <laughs> drifted. But this was just something that was made up in my head. I don't know if this was, you know, incepted by the movies necessarily, but uh, but that kind of reality breakdown horror, I'm really just riffing on this Tales from the Dark Side intro. Mm. But it's all in that, you know, it just really scared me. So there was like a shadow realm version of your backyard versus like a normal one? <laughs> or were they both kind of weird? I really think it's just you 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 kind of built like one one map in your brain one day and a different one the other day mm. if that makes sense and so or maybe it's just some crazy shit i made up as a kid <laughs> well i mean you you're onto something though because that's something that's still uh, a big element for hugely successful genre right now because what what that opening from tales from the dark side it's essentially the upside down from stranger things right mm -hmm. so you know and the duffers are milking that for all of its worth you know and and uh uh yeah and you that's also another connection between hellraiser and uh this movie uh and that's the the little uh world that's just beyond like the troll opens up that little mm -hmm. that little mouse hole essentially but it's not like he carves it out it's like it folds out of of itself and then it heals itself back up you know at the end mm -hmm. right which you know thinking about it that's some of my favorite stuff uh in your hellraiser is the extrapolating on on breaking down that veil you know piercing the veil between our world and uh and the the cenobites world right and the way that the door doors appear and you know walls disappear and and you know you do something very without spoiling it, you do something very interesting with like, well, what if you're on the move when this happens? Like, how does that yes. work? Yes. Uh, so not to keep diving back into Hellraiser, but you know, I, that's an interesting parallel, you know, kind of that, that whole, you know, just there's this crazy fantasy world, you know, just right next to our own that, you know, we just coexist with and don't even know about it. Yeah. It's the stuff of cosmic horror, right? It's something that right. comes, you know, from between the seams of our reality or, uh, or another reality into ours. And, uh, yeah, I always been drawn to this. I was really excited watching cats. <laughs> like the end, <laughs> this troll, this little troll story at the end, which is incredible special effects, but that, um, all the tropes are there, you know, and when he, when he runs back into his little wall portal, uh, it fuses up as though nothing had ever happened. And, right. Uh, yeah, I thought that was wild. I'm really excited to to loop back to something you were saying about anthology movies um, a moment ago. I'm really excited to hear you name check Twilight Zone, the movie in there. I, I fucking love that movie. And I know there's, you know, obviously there's some baggage attached to that, you know, given the, uh, you know, the John Landis segment, the, mm -hmm. the tragedy occurred that while they were filming that. But beyond that, I, I think that I've never understood why that movie takes heat for uh, not being very good. You know, mm. I've told people I love that movie before and they're like, what are you out of your fucking mind? No, I'm mm. not. That movie rules. Um, I, and I even like the kick the can segment, which uh, even people who would, who say they like the movie don't say they don't like 
but you know but i i also love a variety in horror you know that's kind of why i like cat's eye so much too because it's mm-hmm. the the first two as david has said is like they're very adult stories and the third one's just like we're gonna have a lot of fun this is gonna be ridiculous it's gonna be like goofy borderline you know uh, cartoony at some point but it's you know i don't know it's just fun you know you get different flavors that's if you're going to be you know I don't know, enjoying horror, especially anthology horror. I think you need those differences in tone, which totally. is, uh, you know, something that Satanic Hispanics, uh, which also played Fantastic Fest, uh, I think did very well, too. So I think that's a really a good mark of a good anthology is being able to play with tones. I mean, uh, Signal is very much the same way, too. Oh, for sure. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Sig- Signal was an experiment in tone for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, filmmaker communication because I, I've, I, I will confess, we, we kind of thought we were all doing the same thing, and then, uh, <laughs> and then you're, you're you accidentally waiting for each other on that. So you're, so, you're, I'm like holding the camera for my buddy Jacob, and I'm going, "What are you doing?" And and uh, and he's saying the same thing to me, shooting my segment, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, we learned that the, if we could describe it verbally, then we wouldn't have had to make the movie to see just how different our perceptions were on said <laughs> topics. But one of the things about Cat's Eye that's so weird to me is that it's, 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 it's not a kind of, and maybe this is just a desire for symmetry in these things, but it's mm. not a, it's not like you have three totally different tones at work, uh, throughout the anthology. Right. The first two movies absolutely fit together and again they're these kind of adult themed satires it feels feels like wild tales which is another great kind of modern anthology but they really belong together they're both uh exploring themes of addiction they're both you know pitch black comedies they both you know you've got uh james woods in one and robert hayes in another and i you know to 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 me as a young person both those guys kind of occupied a very similar space oh my god Um, Uh, real quick i want to pin this uh just for a second because in my mind i could easily picture james wood like if i'm thinking about both segments i can convince myself without much effort that james woods was on the ledge and robert hayes was the one smoking so you saying that is absolutely Hmm. uh uh in you know it, it tracks with my my uh experience with this this thing too where they they, and I think they're both really great in their own segments. You know, don't don't get me wrong, but there is just something about them. Maybe it's the way they're dressed or their haircuts are similar. There's something about it where you can convince yourself, or at least I could. So maybe I'm the weird one here. But they occupy exactly the same space. I actually think I made the same mistake when I was watching it again. I was like, I was like, all right, okay, so Woods is in the smoking one. And for a moment, I was confused. Yeah. It's like, is he in both of them? Yeah. I couldn't even remember <laughs> totally, but. Uh, but yeah, and then and then and then they make some really crazy moves in Quitters Inc. Like that party scene where he's being tempted to smoke. Yeah, right. Smoking nightmare is one of the best things I. I mean, going back and looking at it, it's one of the best things I've seen in a while. Right. Alan uh, King coming down that stairs, listening yeah. to, or he's like lip syncing. Uh, I'll be watching you. Goofy as hell. It's the, it starts with this really obvious, I'll be watching you needle drop, and then it just mutates into some kind of bizarre nightmare. And uh, I particularly love the the painting on the wall that is smoky. Starts to see like cigarettes everywhere, like the children are smoking. You know, there's a there's a guy sitting next to his wife because his his wife is under threat. The whole bargain is, you know, if he smokes a cigarette, they're gonna electroshock his wife. There's a guy sitting next to his wife who's just exhaling endlessly. He's got his head back on the couch. Mm-hmm. And it they they hold on the cut long enough that you're like, oh, the guy next to her is smoking. 
But then they cut back to it and he's still exhaling. And it's just <laughs> this tiny little uncanny detail. I thought it was really mm-hmm. great. And um, and then there's the paintings on the wall that are watching him and smoking. And then the the the, the clincher is he's uh, he's trying to ignore all of these kind of uh, uh, hallucinatory distractions. And uh, uh, somebody offers him like a, a, a tray of deviled eggs. The deviled eggs are formed as a human face with like an olive in the center of the nose. Uh-huh. Like the tray is smoking and watching him. I'm just like, <laughs> this is all awesome. true, but hearing you describe <laughs> it out loud sounds insane. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> is general your favorite of the segments in this? I mean, as a kid, absolutely. You know, I mean, going right. back, I'm like, you know, Quitters Inc. Uh, I, I was a smoker for 15 years. Uh, it's uh, it, it, not just that, but just the humor of it. Like, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously that appeals to me a lot more now. And and the ledge is great too. You know, the ledge is kind of watching it again. I, I'm just marveling at the effects. You know, I, I have to kind of look into how they did all that. It was like rear projection or something, but like, you know. Oh, no, it, they just strung him on up on a. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Really Ralph, high ledge. Full, he went full Tom Cruise and just yes. he did it for real. Yeah. I just kind of kind of amazed at just how much tension they got out of that. Um, you know, the, mm. and the high comedy of him kind of moving across the ledge and, you know, his worst problem, you know, the worst problem that he has the entire time is a pigeon pecking him in the ankle. <laughs> those are, those are good. Aggressively. Moves. I might add. Yeah. Yeah. Bleeding through the sock. Like, yep. uh, yeah, those are good. Those are good movie problems, but yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. Going back, seeing general, uh you know the the troll at the end um i it just feels like a kid's movie in a good way Uh, yeah i feel like that one i don't know i'm trying to decide if you put that one in the middle to break up like the two more adult feeling ones what difference that would make but i don't think you could really end on um the i guess you could well, I mean, if the whole thing is you're following the cat's perspective, right. you know, the end of the cat's arc is is finding a home with Drew Barrymore, right? So, so you, it kind of has to be the the final, the final. Well, segment. he could have gone home with uh, Robert Hayes. You I guess that's not just as satisfying. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it's more. It would be more heartwarming to kids that it ends up with Drew Barrymore, but you know, I would be. I I don't know. It it, it probably wouldn't work, but. It it is it is jarring for that segment to arrive right at the end and I, I not will be say of a piece. They did try to tie it all together in a really. I mean, you've got the 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 you know the cat maneuvering through each of the stories necessarily. But I was going back and looking at it, I was like really surprised that right there at the beginning, um, right after uh, you know what were a couple King shout outs. You've got like the Cujo beat, the Christine mm-hmm. beat, um, the. Uh, you know, the cat is visited by an apparition of young Drew Barrymore. Kind mm-hmm. of <laughs> and it's, they, she's calling out to him. They have a kind of telepathic connection. But yet mm-hmm. when she meets the cat, it's like she doesn't know. So it's sort uh-huh. of a subconscious telepathic connection. I thought that was well, a funny move from the top. There, there, this is this is kind of like a, a, a multiverse story because there's many little Drew Barrymores who play different characters and different roles in this. And and I think that those are different different uh, versions of Drew Barrymore. So I think there was what? like, yeah, because Drew Barrymore plays James Woods's daughter, a uh, very problematic uh, uh, handicapped daughter. 
she's the the uh, brunette in the mannequin thing calling out to him at the beginning and then I I don't know if she pops up in the ledge she must pop up in the ledge somewhere but and then she's that character is just like herself in the third third I, one yeah I didn't realize that was her yeah I yeah. didn't notice that either it's what true our choice yeah so it's the cat Andrew Barrymore uh but I my understanding is that Dino was just like head over heels for Drew Barrymore you know hopefully not in a a uh, 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 legit way, but like just in terms of thinking that she was, she was like the next big star, and like, uh, and that she was very crucial to like his pitch to King on the movie. He was like, yeah, we got, you know, I just worked with her on Fire Firestarter, and she's great. She's the girl from ET, and she's gonna be, she's huge. She's the best n- new actress or whatever. She's gonna connect everything together. I mean, I I wonder. It's like this was eighty five. Did this movie come out of? Was it just the byproduct of King Mania? It's you're just trying to find a way to cobble together as mm-hmm. many King stories it's, as you can in one, you know, in one movie. I mean, what an odd like one off. I mean, because how? <laughs> what was the? Well, it seems like it's aping the or attempting to ape the success of Creepshow. No. Yeah, yeah, but a little bit like Gremlins. I think had to justify the troll in some way. Hmm. And then it's almost right. like they were trying to, I mean, what year was Gremlins? Was uh, 84? 84. Well, then that would have been pretty tight. Yeah, but. Was it 84? Let me look. Or was that 82? Nope, 84. Yeah, that would have been a quick turnaround. But no, I, I imagine totally. It's something, it was the next step after Creep Show. You've got these fascinating night shift stories. I just don't know how you end up combining them with the troll story necessarily mm-hmm. and out i mean well the troll one was written for the movie and the other two were pulled pulled in um i i think it was just it breaks down to dino de Laurentiis had the rights to a shit ton of stephen king stuff and and they were making money and he saw stephen king's name on the poster as as being you know another star so he you know mm-hmm. was making as much stephen king shit as he could because within that three or four year period that was the dino movies was uh Firestarter and did did he produce Dead Zone? I think he produced Dead Zone as well, didn't he? I think so. I think it's Dead Zone, Firestarter, Firestarter. Maximum Overdrive, and Cat's Eye. Or did he do Cujo? I don't think he did Cujo. The director of of Cat's Eye did uh, uh, directed Cujo, but right. Louis Teague. But yeah, I, I feel like we're missing one. But uh, but we'll we'll figure that out later. Someone will tell us. I'm sure <laughs> once this airs. Well, it's a marvel to me to see an anthology so uniquely strung together. Uh, there's such a, you know, I having I've, I've I've directed on three anthologies and um, uh, and I came I came up I kind of had a collaborative uh, film project before we even did the signal that led to the signal. So I you know I kind of I love the camaraderie of a bunch of filmmakers coming together to to do you know uh, you know just a crazy uh, you know off kilter anthologies and I I think the biggest challenge is always how to make them cohere. And it, it normally fails. And so I think <laughs> to, 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 there's always a charm in how we try to make excuses for ourselves to watch short horror strung together. And so I, this is by far the zaniest one I've ever seen where the story is shut <laughs> together by a wandering cat that is actually the hero of the last story. I just don't think there'll ever be another movie quite like this. Something I have pitched on the show on multiple occasions, and I'm going to keep pitching until someone out there hears this and does it, is I would love it if they just made a movie called Skeleton Crew or Nightmares and Dreamscapes, right? And you get four, like, the exact same model as the Twilight Zone movie. 
maybe you have a fifth guy or lady doing a wraparound for the thing that does somehow tie it together. But um, for the most part, it's top shelf directors, you know, just straight up adapting, you know, how that many of the short stories from either Skeleton Crew or Night Shift, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, whatever. You know what? If it's a success, do a volume two and pick four more stories out of there. Uh, it seems like that would be such a slam dunk idea. But I, I remember when uh, Guillermo del Toro was on the show asking, like, why doesn't something like that just happen? You know, it seems like such a, a home run. And he was just like, anthology movies don't tend to make a lot of money. And yeah. is that is that your opinion as well? Like, that's it's that's I know why. It's- First of all, I don't know why. I mean, that's never happened. It seems so obvious. Skeleton mm-hmm. crew, the movie or the show. Uh, no, I mean, I having worked on a bunch of anthologies and always wanted to parlay that into being a part of anthological conversations wherever they may happen. And uh, but I know kind of getting out there like it's a toxic word when you're, you're talking to studios trying to really get going. Yeah. Artists love it because if you're in a TV space, you can. um put your own signature on something and uh, you can get that kind of variety show feeling. I think, um, you know, great thing about anthologies is that you can kind of compare the movies and everyone can identify to each chapter that, that they see fit. And so there's, there's a, there's a conversation piece there that follows. And I think that's, I think it's really fun for creators. I think the fact that there's not a lot of narrative follow through just for an attention starved audience that's it's it's harder to keep people engaged is the fear that i have Mm. always run into i also feel like i'm always late to the party where we'll (laughs) end up trying to get something going and they've already signed up for an anthology somewhere and that's for some executive become a toxic word i've straight up pitched anthology series where we all we did was you know not say the word and uh, (laughs) try to try to slip it by uh, some higher up above the executive necessarily. And it didn't really work, but it's a non serialized. um, Yeah. Like trying to, trying to avoid that particular word must be a pain in the ass. Yeah. Or Uh, you're trying to, you're trying to force a follow through in, in one way or another, something that uh, can tether it together. So they just don't categorize it the same way, but that's how, that's how corporate works, right? Like that's, it's, if you have the right buzzwords, you can't be blamed when any when when train goes right. off the tracks. Yeah. So if you were, it, let's say, we had three directors already lined up to do a Stephen King anthology, and we we wanted to bring you in for the fourth. What short story do you think you would tackle for that for that project? Oh. And don't worry about it being from a specific book or anything like that. Just the first one that comes to mind. Would it be the jaunt? I mean, the jaunt would be. F- Fascinating. John is kind of a, like a one-two punch. You know, the temptation with the jaunt is to find some way to represent what it is to be in the infinite, uh, right? Uh, you know, uh, transported uh, transportation space, whatever you call it, the jaunt. Um, but uh, uh, would you? Then does that mean you would want to show it? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Like I feel like you'd. I feel like it's part of what's so scary about the short is that it's only described, uh, I believe from the father to his son mm-hmm. and, um, the spoiler, the kid goes through the teleportation, uh, which is infinite to the mind, but, uh, immediate to the body. And, uh, by the time he comes through on the other side, he's like 
aged a hundred years and he's dr- gone completely mad and his hair turns white. And, uh, right. his, his father is long, long jaunt, long jaunt. And, uh, that he was too curious and, and had to experience it. So there's something very haunting in, in the short story about the fact that it's plated or remove, but I don't know. There's certainly the temptation to just peek if you're actually going to bring it to screen, but that's, that's the one that's always really stuck to me. I think, as I mentioned before too, that and survivor type and, um, you'd be real good for a survivor type. I think it's such a grim, I mean, that's one that really sticks with you. And I just like to see you shooting in like a tropical setting would be cool. Like (laughs) usually a lot of your stuff is so like, you know, it's dark, you know, even the, even the forest in, um, you know, the ritual is, is largely a darker setting, you know, uh, but we got to get you on a beach or something. You know, I think we'd be clever enough to write stories that take place in beautiful locations, but it doesn't <laughs> seem to work out that way. Yeah. Brian Johnson just happened to pick the, uh, a, a beautiful Island in Greece for, for knives out <laughs> too. We know what you're doing, Ryan. He was in Belgrade as well. So we had the same production services company. We occasionally shared locations. And um, so their crew and our crew, like we'd be shooting nights and their second unit crew, I think would. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so it'd be like our crew walking by their crew. And there was a, you could could (laughs) sense a competition in the air. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when a Cenobite shows up and Glass Onion, we'll we'll know that uh, <laughs> that the crossover that we've all wanted is in full effect. Yeah. Well, we know you. Uh, we know you were working under a, a time constraint today, so we'll. Uh, I think we'll let you go. But uh, first, uh, before we do that, um, where can people find Hellraiser this Friday? Hellraiser will be on Hulu October seventh. Yes. Was yes. this ever planned as a theatrical release? We took it out not knowing where we were going to land. And gotcha. um, it's, a, it's a little harder to sell a Hellraiser movie in the 2020s than you might think. Uh, no, I would think that. I mean, they buried it under, what, six or seven, you know, direct-to-video sequels. I would imagine it would be an uphill battle to, mm. to get that just, going. It's strange because in the horror court, it's, it's prestige. You know, it's like uh, there's a... There's, uh, you know, some sacred about Hellraiser and the people that are in the know, uh, hold it up. And, uh, but you kind of get out of that conversation and to a lot of people, it's, it's the weird one from the eighties. Right. Uh, it's an uphill battle to describe to them that this is, uh, this is something people are going to grab onto. And, uh, but it's been, it's been great to see it get out there a little bit. And I think, I hope that we've made something that is a gateway Mm -hmm. drug to new audiences for all of Hellraiser. I think that's a pretty safe bet. Yeah. Actually, I have another Hellraiser question for you. Sure. You know, uh, last I heard this, uh, HBO Max has a Hellraiser series in development with David Gordon Green. Mm-hmm. Um, how is it possible that there's a, you know, uh, a Hellraiser movie on Hulu, but there's also, like, wouldn't one company hold the rights? You know, like, how is HBO Max doing a series is my question. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I'm sort of mystified myself by how the rights get split up and divided in different ways. Uh, uh-huh. Who's able to get a hold of them and hang on to them and then who sells them, who auctions them off. Um, some of these I'm, I've come to understand get sold off in package deals. So people are buying big blocks of, con, you know, IP content at the same time. Gotcha. And, uh, but uh, uh, 
I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I think Hellraiser would really, really hold up in long form and I would be excited to see what they would do with it. Mm. And, um, you know, I think, uh, and, and, uh, I, I believe Clive's involved with that one too. So I think that'd mm. be really fascinating. I, I, I think more the merrier, get them all going. Yeah, for real. There, there cannot be too much Hellraiser content as far as I'm concerned. And you've already said, right, that you'd be willing to, to come back if they wanted to do another feature. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, if, 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 if we had the right story, if we had a really good angle on it, I absolutely, of course. I mean, it's part of it is it's too much fun. And, and it's, I, you know, I talked a bit a little about the logistical challenges, but also conceptually, I've just never worked on anything this rich. And, uh, you, you really, you run into your own limitations pretty quickly because you can imagine anything in this universe and it's all, you know, dark and beautiful and visceral and surreal and sexy and has the potential to be truly, truly horrifying. And so, uh, I also just had a really good time, you know, with my crew. So, uh, I feel like we learned a lot on this. I feel like we would be really sharpened to do another one if the right opportunity presented itself, but we'll see what people think. And, uh, should there be an appetite for it? I I wouldn't hesitate. Well, I think, I think the fans are going to love it. Um, of course you can never predict a fan base, but, um, just going by my own reaction and how much I love Hellraiser, I think any reasonable person, uh, will be a big fan of this. And, um, I hope you get to make another one because I had a hell of a time watching it. No pun intended. (laughs) Well, thank you for being here today, sir. This was, this was great. And I wish you all the, uh, all the success with this one. Thanks, gents. Appreciate it. Many thanks to David Bruckner for joining us, finally coming on the show. This is somebody that we've actually been trying to get on the show even uh, before he tackled one of Mr. Wampler, Pop-Pop Wampler's favorite <laughs> favorite uh, genres, favorite sub-genres of, of horror franchises. That is true. That is true. Um, so excited about the new Hellraiser. Uh, everything I said to David on the on the air is is dead accurate. I I love this movie, and uh, I think my fellow Hellraiser fans are going to like it. So definitely check that out when it hits uh, hits Hulu this Friday. Hell yeah! Uh, and speaking of hitting Friday, we have something else hitting this Friday. Do you want to tell the good people what's coming on our Patreon? Yes, we are doing uh, uh, this month's uh, Kingcast commentary. Uh, this time around, we are doing Sleepwalkers. With our good friend Winter Mitchell returning to the show, uh, Winter and I uh, just actually went on a trip together. We went to Vegas and uh, saw Nine Inch Nails and uh, met Dr. Trent Reznor. You're going to get that story up front. You're also going to get some talk uh, about Sleepwalkers as well as the full commentary. Um, I got to tell you, Eric, Winter tells me she's not a fan or was not a fan of the last me? time she saw this. Well, of you and Sleepwalkers. Yeah. Um, I know what I did. And I was like, we we both we're both Sleepwalkers fans. So this ought to be interesting. I think we're going to bring her around to our way of thinking on this. Yes. If you've listened to any of the episodes that we've had with uh, Winter, we've done what uh, at least one Patreon episode. And then she did uh, one main feed episode. And then she joined in on the last anniversary show. If you know Winter, she's uh, one of our more chaotic guests. And uh, so this is going to be a lively, lively one to listen to this Friday. Yes, indeed. And yeah. um, we're not done with the Hellraiser business, are we? I know. Eric? We got yeah. uh, some more Hellraiser associated peeps, too, in fact, coming on as our guests in the main feed. 
mm-hmm. uh, next Wednesday. And their chosen topic is N, which is a very interesting one. It's uh, it's a very creepy novella-ish. You would just call that a novella, right? It's a little bit longer than a short story, but not quite a novel. It's, it's I don't like know if it's quite... Pages. I don't know if it, yeah, I don't know if it quite counts as a novella, but it feels that way. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's a not one of King's most known, but those who know it love it. There was a comic book adaptation of N, right? Did Marvel do an N? Yeah, there's book? like a there's a like a motion comic thing right. they did uh, before it came out. Um, it's really cool. I was I was uh, rewatching some of that last night as a matter of fact it's uh nice, getting ready. it's really neat and this is uh this is one of one of my personal favorite uh king shorts in that you know it's very lovecraftian it's uh it's got a little dark tower vibes to it because you're dealing with this you know this this uh thinny, stone circle yeah that's essentially a thinny right um really cool stuff and outside of the box pick uh from these guests for those of you who listened to today's episode and were like wow they spent the first 20 minutes of this episode talking about Hellraiser, but didn't really ask anything specific. Yeah, that's right, motherfuckers, because the movie's not out yet. Comes out on Friday. We didn't want to dig in too deep as not to spoil anything uh, for you, the lucky soon-to-be Hellraiser watchers at home. But next week on the show, we will be putting our guests through the paces and and digging in a little deeper into the nitty-gritty of the uh, the new Hellraiser. Yep, and uh, it's an interesting pairing too, considering that uh, N has got a lot of kind of get under your skin kind of imagery and tone things. It's a little he's a little closer to Barker, especially that whole you know world right next to ours stuff. So, so uh, I, I think our guest picked this title on purpose, and and that's good. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for for that episode, and uh, and also that'll be the last episode that drops before uh, we're in Bangor. It's a busy week next week, but we got some good shit for you. Indeed. Uh, you ready for that, Vespi? It's gonna be a it's gonna be a lot. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot. But I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, as much as I'm looking forward to meeting a lot of the listeners and stuff, I am. Yes. Like, I, I'm not going to lie. The thing that I'm I'm most looking forward to is experiencing New England in the fall. I can't wait for that drive that we're taking from Boston to to uh, to Bangor. It's going to be so beautiful. It's going to be great. Going to be gorgeous. Get, maybe get some be- beach pizza on the some way. Some beach pizza. You can have yeah. some lobster rolls and I can oh. turn my nose up at it and like the filthy seafood hater that I am. It'll be great. Disgusting. Ridiculous. And I won't acknowledge it. But I will be eating my own weight in lobster rolls, which is substantial. So um, I'll I'll make it up for for the both of us. Yep, that is that is your burden. (laughs) My burden, my gift, baby. Come on. You have such delights to show me when we get there. Indeed. (laughs) All right. So we'll see you all on Wednesday next week as we talk N. See you then, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>